you on page 855. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. pray together. Father, we ask for your help now. We've heard your word read. We, we need assistance to, I need assistance to proclaim it. We need assistance to receive the truth of it. So guide us now to that end, that we may be sanctified and you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's official. It's Christmas season for those. Uh, was that somebody getting excited? Yeah, there we go. Just, okay. For those relatively few normal people left in the world, it's time for us to join the fanatics. We can dive in. It's time for those that have had their decorations up since Halloween or those that have four, maybe five Christmas trees. The rest of us can jump in on the fun. Uh, the reality is Christmas means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. People celebrate it in uh, different ways. Our culture demonstrates that you don't need the Christ of Christmas to actually uh, jump in and have some sort of enjoyment in it. Uh, but for us, those that claim the name of Christ, Christmas obviously has special, unique meaning. At least um, it should. Uh, if you just pause and think about it for the for the Christian Christian mean Christmas means that God has come in the flesh. It means the the king of heaven exchanged his throne for a manger. It means the the creator of all stepped into his creation. It means the author of life has put himself on the page of his story. 
For the Christian, Christmas is embodied in a name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. As a result, as you've already heard and witnessed, um, we join with so many Christians and churches around the world, and we mark today what is the beginning of Advent, a tradition developed over church history, used as a time of preparation for Christmas. It's not a biblical mandate, but it is a very useful uh, tool, a uh, useful tradition, because for four, for four weeks leading up to, to Christmas, we reenact, in a sense, we remember What Israel waited for for so long, that anticipation, that longing they had for God's Messiah to come as they waited seemingly forever for this Messiah to come. So we kind of step back in and remember that story. If you are unfamiliar, maybe didn't hear the intro today, if you're unfamiliar with the advent, the word simply means coming uh, with the obvious emphasis on the first coming of Jesus. Okay, the Christmas story. But advent also has rolled into it a second coming. If you're new to all this, not familiar with the Bible, we we believe that Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, Jesus rose. He ascended okay, to the right hand of the throne of God. But one day he's coming back. okay, He's coming back. So Advent brings that into play as well, both his first coming and his second coming. If you've never observed Advent um, or in particular been here during Advent, It's often observed thematically. You've heard one of the themes already, but I don't remember if all four themes were mentioned at the beginning. But we have repentance, we have anticipation, we have joy, and we have hope. And you've already heard the theme of repentance up to this point in the gathering. And if we're honest with one another, uh, three of the four themes kind of have a Christmassy feel to them, if that's an actual word. Uh, But the theme for today doesn't doesn't feel very Christmassy. It's Kind of repentance doesn't really call you to rock around the Christmas tree, okay? It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't kind of beckon you into the Christmas season necessarily as our culture uh, would have it. But even the Grinch, you know, if that's one of your favorite stories, even the Grinch had to repent in a way to be able to enjoy uh, Christmas. So the theme is there even if we've missed it. But the reality is we all need to come to terms with this at Christmas. That there is no Christmas joy without first walking the road of repentance. Okay, Christmas joy doesn't exist, not true joy, if you don't walk the road of repentance. There's a reason the song Joy to the World includes that line, let every heart prepare him room. That, that embodies the act of repentance, preparing room for Christ. We are preparing room for the Christ of Christmas where joy is to be found. So that's why we do this. That's That's what we're... Walking into this time of year with that, we we find ourselves back in the gospel of Luke uh, this morning, attempting to do justice to chapter one, verses five through twenty five. I think it's a great place uh, to look at repentance. Um, We have the beginning. Okay, we don't necessarily have the preacher, but we have the beginning of one of the most famous preachers of repentance, John the Baptist. Nothing like John the Baptist to get you in the Christmas spirit, right? We don't get to hear from John this morning, but we get to see the beginning of John. Where did John come from? How did he originate? Um, If you were not here last week, by the way, Pastor Ryan uh, kicked us off in a sermon series on Luke that we're going to be in for a while. If you were not here, it would be worth your while to go back and listen to that sermon. A lot of introductory material that will be useful to carry through the rest of the series. You can uh, find that on the website or just reach out to Ryan, I'm sure. He'd be happy to uh, make sure you you get that. But uh, for today, as you've already heard read and as the subheading in your Bible probably reads, we are looking at the foretelling of the birth of the somewhat odd figure known as John the Baptist. Again, not exactly if we're if we're asked what what comes to mind, we think about Christmas. If we're asked that question a 100 times, John the Baptist does not come to mind. He's not exactly Miracle on 34th Street, Macy's kind of guy. Okay, but. He's very important for Christmas. And I would say the importance of John the Baptist for Christmas cannot be overstated. In fact, I think John, in the beginning of his life and the entire point of his ministry, he is the perfect individual to get the Christmas season kicked off and to help us be reoriented back to the reason for the season, as we often say. Okay, so 
That's where we're going. Here's the game plan uh, for the rest of our time, or the rhythm, as maybe is a better way to put it. I've got six observations, and then I'm going to have a lesson attached to each observation. Nothing earth-shattering in terms of novelty in these lessons. A lot more lessons to be learned, but they're, they're for baptisms and the Lord's Supper to come after this. And so we're just going to do six observations, one lesson, um, and you don't have any uh, notes in front of you, but hopefully these will be on the screen as we go. So what do we observe first? Uh, first, I want us to point, I want to look at light that interrupts darkness. That's the first thing I want us to see, light that interrupts the darkness. And this would be the moment where we get to sort of jump into the historical context of what's going on in the background. Verse five, in the days of Herod. King of Judea. That's how this uh, starts off. That's not a throwaway line. Those don't actually exist in Scripture. But Luke in particular, if you hear last week, you know, Luke's all about historical details. He's the doctor historian. So we really need to key in when Luke brings up something like this. Um, kids in the room, I've got a simple one for you. I don't want to, you know, Ryan does this every week. I don't want to get owned and give you something uh, too hard. So in the days of Herod, King of Judea, as it starts out. Would that be a good time or bad time? Sad time, tough time, easy time, or what, what would it be? There we go. See that? Pastor Corey knows how to do that. Yeah, bad time. It's really, really tough. No, it's, it's, it's in all seriousness, it's not a good time. Um, but what about Herod? Do you want to answer this? Herod a good guy or a bad guy? Kids? That's right, he's a bad guy. Not a good guy. So... The Christmas story doesn't start with once upon a time. It's not this this fairy tale sort of all is well and might uh, bright and merry. Uh, that's that's not how it is. You know, we walk into the season and, and things kind of literally there's illumination right, in the darkness. But that's not how the Christmas story begins. We read the Christmas story. and We likely skip over the emphatic point that Luke is making here. To sum up just what he's saying in this part of verse five, he's saying darkness. That's what you have. You have darkness. This story begins and it is a dark time. There's a lot you could say about the reign of this guy, but it's not good, whether it's killing a wife or I think three of his 12 children or other family members. It's not good stuff. He was a crafty uh, politician. OK, he actually did. What you might label as some good things if you could put aside all the heinous things uh, that he did. And you have to keep in mind, this guy is a puppet king of the Roman Empire. So Jews at this time are under Roman rule. They're under Roman oppression. And this guy, Herod, to sort of put the cherry on top, he's a descendant of Esau. This is an insult from Rome. Let's put a descendant of Esau on the throne to rule over the Jewish people. Things haven't been good for the Jews for a long time. Think back, go all the way back to the exile and then sort of the mediocre return that they had. And they're still under foreign rule. They just get they just get passed from one superpower to the next. And now it's Rome's turn. So Herod was a bad dude. And this is punctuated by a story in Matthew okay, happening after the birth of Jesus. You remember what what the. The puppet king at that time did because he's jealous of, you know, his losing his his rule and his authority at this so-called Messiah. He thinks he's been tricked by the wise men and decides to murder every child in Bethlehem that was under two. So that's the guy in charge as we start to read these events. On top of that, religion in Israel, in Judaism at that time, is just corrupt. You've got these warring factions going after one another. Okay, You've got sort of this terrorist group, the zealots, in the middle of it. Worship in the temple has been significantly compromised. We see Jesus step in and address that at one point in his life. It is a bleak situation, both morally and spiritually, as well as politically. Things are not good. These are dark Days in the history of God's people. And it's in these days that we see light break forth. It's in these days that light interrupts darkness. If you, if you miss that, then it, then it kind of takes away from some of what Jesus says or what is said about Jesus, particularly in the book of John. So let's not remember the con- let's not forget the context in which all of this starts. So the lesson is simple. Here's the lesson. Believe that God is always at work. Okay, I could probably state this in a bunch of different ways. Believe that he's not given up. 
believe no matter how bleak the times, he's not some absentee landlord, even in the midst of the darkest times. God is still on the throne. God is still working. God has demonstrated that reality time and time again throughout history. And here's another emphatic example of that. In some really dark days, God is about to press the go button on the greatest events in all of history. It's not the main point, but it's a point worth noting in the text. Okay, that's just the first part of verse five, but we're going to get there. Okay, next observation. And this probably does encompass what I would call the main point of uh, the text. Next, I want us to see fulfillment that breaks the silence, fulfillment that breaks the silence. So let's set the scene in a little more detail. In these dark days, you have a particular priest that's going about his duties. We are introduced to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And we know from verse six, these are some faithful folks. Okay, they're faithful. We'll come back to that in a in a minute. And they are childless, childless, according to verse seven. We'll also revisit that briefly in just a minute. So here's the high point of the text. If you remember from last week, Luke has put together what he has called an orderly account. And he's written to this guy named Theophilus. And here's what he wants Theophilus to know first. First thing in this orderly account is an angelic encounter in the temple. So Zechariah is a priest and his turn has come to serve in the temple. At that time, you've got a ton of priests, something like 18,000 of them. They're broken into divisions. You see in verse five there, Zechariah is the division of Abijah. And you get the numbers and you start to do the math and you look historically how it played out. Zechariah, the event that takes place here, he would only get to do that once in his lifetime. Only once would you be able to go into the temple and offer the incense, burn the incense and pray on behalf of the people. So from a work standpoint, this is it. This is the peak moment for Zechariah. You can imagine the excitement for both him and Elizabeth and what they're getting to walk into. This is something he would have dreamed about his entire life. And finally, the day has come. The lot has literally fell in his direction. Which, by the way, Proverbs 16, helps us out here. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from whom? The Lord. We don't need to walk away thinking, well, Zechariah was just lucky. Good for him, or he's good at dice. He knows how to make them roll. He's not lucky. God is sovereign. Luke is making that clear. God is sovereign. It's his turn. It's his job to go. It's his turn to go into the holy place, in the temple. You probably have a picture. Uh, most of the Bibles, you go to the back, and it's got maps of the temple. So just find that map of the temple uh, in Herod's day, and you can see the layout where the holy place was. It probably even shows where the... The, the, the altar is that it's being talked about here. So he goes in, he lights some incense, come up out of the temple. People are outside praying. He's going to pray in there. And he comes out later and there's stuff he's supposed to say and pray again to the people. There's an, the Aaronic bl- uh, blessing. You can kind of go back in the Old Testament and look at that. And this whole deal actually happened twice a day. We don't know if this is the morning or the evening, but this happened twice a day. So Zechariah walks in. He lights the incense. He prays. And then things get interesting. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar. There's a side note there. Ryan helped us last week to pay attention to the historical accuracy of a book like Luke. This is one of those little details that points to that. He was standing where? On the right side. Where do you think Luke got that from? Somebody had talked to Zechariah or somebody has been passed down like he's telling the story. I'm standing there. I do my thing. I pray about do all that. And the angel's right there on the right side. It's right. I mean, you just vivid description. And that's what got passed to Luke. And he's putting it down. Theophilus, this happened. Zechariah did what people do when they see angels in scripture. Cowers in fear. Read. So many things this week that are laughable about views on angels. I don't know why people do uh, polls on what people view on angels. It's just weird to me, but they're out there. Um, and it's comical what what people believe about angels, sad at the same time. But when I'm not going to go into that. When angels show up in Scripture, people are afraid. It should be telling that often the first words out of an angel when somebody's encountering them is, I'm not going to kill you, don't be afraid. 
Like that shows they're actually fearful of their life. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Like that. They have to say it so that people know. There was something absolutely frightening about the presence of an angel. So here's an angel who we see is specifically the angel Gabriel. And he has a message. Verse 13, paraphrasing, your prayer's been heard. You and your wife are going to have a son. It's going to be called John. It's going to do some great things. There'll be joy and there'll be gladness. He's going to be great before God. He's going to have a little bit of a lifestyle, but that's okay. He's going to be spirit empowered from the jump. And this is really important. Verses 16 and 17. Let's read this again. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Those two verses point at what's probably the main point of the text. This is the fulfillment that breaks the silence. Gabriel is quoting or at least referencing scripture. Anybody, kids, we'll try again. Anybody know what prophet? I'll narrow it down for you. What prophet that Gabriel is quoting here? Oh, I can't hear him. And it's not Elijah. One more guess. It's Malachi. Quoting from Malachi, two texts, okay, chapter, I'll just read these to you, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jackson, appreciate you stepping up. Y'all don't be afraid to answer, okay? Don't come back in here next week and tell Pastor Ryan like you're afraid to answer because you got, got my question wrong. All right, there's a lot there, but, but here's the point for now. Not only are we in extremely dark days for God's people, but God has been silent for hundreds of years. Dark days and a silent God. Around 400 years with no word from God. No angelic appearance from God. Just think about it. How many times has this been done? How many times has a priest walked into the temple, burned some incense and prayed with no response from God? We'll talk about this more in a minute. But part of Zechariah's prayer in the temple would would have been for God to send his Messiah and to restore his people. And that prayer has been offered up day after day, week after week. Year after year and nothing for a really long time. Silence. Until now. God hasn't acted. God hasn't spoken. God hasn't sent an angel in centuries. But God just spoke and history is about to change. You have an entire history of promises that are coming to bear on this day. Silence has been met with a prophetic word. And that word begins with John the Baptist and his impending birth. Somewhat of a side note here. We'll maybe hit on this more in a minute. But Gabriel, if he's involved, it's a big deal. Just word to Bible readers. If you see Gabriel It's a big deal. If there's a big announcement, Gabriel gets to come. If the other angels see Gabriel leaving the throne room, they're like, oh, well, wait, guys, he's leaving. Let's go see what's up, because something big is about to happen. You're going to see him again next week. Okay, he gets to come back. So we've had a lot of promises made. Gabriel's on the scene. Those promises are about to be kept. This is where it all starts. What's the lesson here? Sort of a layup, I hope. Trust that God will fulfill his promises. Name a promise. Find a promise. It's coming to pass. God is the ultimate promise keeper. Just find one. It's coming to pass. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Check. I will be with you to the end of the age. Check. No one will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Check. Whoever hears these words of mine and believes him who sent me will have eternal life. Check. Come, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Check. If you lack wisdom, wisdom, ask and it will be given to you. Check. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Check. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guaranteed. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Check. Ryan helped us to see last week through the intro that Luke undertook to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. It can also be translated, he said this last week, as fulfilled. The fulfillment has started. Christmas starts right here in the temple with the announcement of the coming of John the Baptist. Next observation. Next, I want us to see promise that that disrupts the despair. Promise that that disrupts the despair. So the promise here is both personal and individual to the couple that it's made to. So it has both. It's both personal and uh, no, it's it's personal for the individual or the couple that's made to. But it's also corporate. So it's both personal and corporate, meaning it's for all of God's people. It's not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth. I think the greater point here is is the one being made for all of God's people. But we don't have to ignore how this promise disrupts the despair of this particular couple. So the text is pretty clear. Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, very Old. Verse 7 makes clear that Elizabeth is beyond child rearing years. That phrase, advanced in years, is used again in verse 18. So you have it twice there. Zechariah steps in and responds to the angel and says, I'm old. And the language here is not, well, we're borderline. We might could have a kid. They are old. They're past their days. Okay. You take that same phrase and you go back to when it was used of Abraham and Sarah. And then you jump to the Apostle Paul and looked at how he helped us interpret that. And it basically means they're good as dead. That's old. Honestly, the phrasing of verse 18 is is this. Look, I'm old, but she's really old. Maybe Zechariah was struck dumb for insulting his wife. But that's that's the way it reads. So this couple's old, but they've never had kids. And it's clear from the text this is something they've longed for, something they have seemingly prayed for countless times, something they have begged God for, something that in the providence, the mysterious providence of God, he has withheld from them. And we'll talk uh, in the lesson briefly about some personal application of this, because I know this is a reality for a lot of people who live faithfully in a broken world. For this couple, this was something that would have been culturally very difficult. There's difficulty with this in our culture, but this would have been really unique. There had been nothing like living in this culture without a child. They would have been viewed as cursed by God. They were, what have you done? You see in verse 25 where Elizabeth says that her reproach has been taken away. There was reproach that would come from the society around them as a result of this. What have you done to God? How have you sinned and therefore you can't have a kid? On top of this, a child in that day was not about any sort of self-fulfillment, not at least as a whole, it was partially about survival. There's no 401k. There's no retirement program. So a child was security for the future to take care of you. An opportunity for the family line to continue. So much was wrapped up in this. So this couple gets a promise that disrupts in a really good way the despair that they had lived with their entire lives. Now, here's an important note about this. I think the point Verse six about how this couple was righteous and how they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statue of the Lord. That point is primarily there to show that their barrenness, her barrenness was not a result of sin. That's what people would have thought. So Luke wants to make sure that's not why they were in the state they were in. And to be clear about that phrasing, that in no way communicates some sinless perfection. Okay, just. Read the rest of the text. It's just an Old Testament way of saying they were faithful, godly people. Okay, that's Old Testament language for their faithful, godly 
people. So Gabriel tells Zechariah his prayer has been heard. So Zechariah go into the temple and pray that he would have a child. Seems seems a little selfish, particularly when he says, I'm too old to have a child. It's likely that's not what he was praying. That's something they have prayed. They likely set aside that prayer years ago. So Gabriel is probably alluding to how God has heard his current prayer, but also is remembering the recurring prayer from years ago. And there's there's a whole nother sermon here. Don't miss the fact that God hears and God answers prayers, but he does so in his ways, in his timing. But he hears and he answers. So what was the current prayer that Gabriel's delivering? A sort of full, dual f- fulfillment on, as, as we could say here. Well, Zechariah should have been praying in part, I mentioned this earlier, for God to send his Messiah. That's, that's primarily what he's going in there. Offer the incense, pray God, restore your people, send your Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. And Gabriel steps in says, that prayer has been answered. You are going to have a son. But it's clear your son is not the Messiah. He's the one that's going to point to the Messiah and get the people ready for the Messiah. The ultimate son comes next week. Okay, Ryan gets to cover the ultimate son. But first, John gets to come and get things ready. So the promise has a much more corporate, much more important corporate dimension to it. So just let the observations build on one another for a second. We see... Some really dark days for God's people. And in these really dark days, God has been silent for 400 years. So a lot of despair day after day. The people longing for God's Messiah and nothing, just silence, just quiet. And then all of a sudden, one day, Zechariah hears from Gabriel and he says, your prayer has been heard. There will be a child and he will get you ready for what you've been waiting on for so long. Here's the lesson to take away from this observation. Know that God will set all things right. A lot of lessons there, but that's the one I wanted to highlight. Know that God will one day set all things right. And I think this applies both individually and Corporately, the truth right here and all that follows the point that they just point to the fact that God will one day set all things right as the children, children's books. So say so well, one day all the sad things will come untrue. For the individuals walking in despair, there's encouragement in Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. There's most certainly encouragement in what. What the the larger story that this leads to. But there's also encouragement in this couple's story that God hears prayers. God knows pain. He knows the pain of his people. God is not absent. Now, I can't take this story and promise you that God will answer prayers in your timing and in your way or in the way the answers here, the story is unique. It's not prescriptive in this way. But I can, with assurance, say that God will one day set all things right. I love the end of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says this. It's talking about John who wrote Revelation. It says, and he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great. It would make all the sadness And tears and everything seem like just a shadow that was chased away by the morning sun. Here's a bit of a sub-lesson from the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They didn't hesitate to take both their despair and their joy to the Lord. We know that they've been leaning on God in prayer amidst their despair. Okay, that the text alludes to that. But in the end, okay. In the end of the text here for Elizabeth and the end of the chapter for Zechariah, they also take their joy to the Lord. The Lord wants both of those. He wants you to come to him in your despair. But he also wants you to come to him in your joy. This faithful couple leaned on God in both. 
All right, we need to move on. Next observation, I want us to see discipline that corrects the heart. Discipline that corrects the heart. Need to cover this one pretty quickly. It's certainly not the main point, but I think it's noteworthy. We have quick proof that uh, walking blamelessly does not mean sinless uh, perfection. We have Zechariah apparently not initially responding well to what the angel said to him and enduring as a result God's discipline. I'll let, you know, if you know the, the two stories and the story that's about to come, uh, I'll let Ryan next week explain why Mary doesn't receive the same type discipline because uh, she seems to res- respond in a similar way. But it's really just a matter of circumstance and heart. So Gabriel gives Zechariah the good news, but Zechariah uh, doesn't receive it that well. Um, as we saw earlier, verse 18, he's old. Elizabeth is old in terms of having kids. And he doesn't ask, how can this be? Note, note what he asked there. How can I know this? Verse 18. He asked for a sign. There's a distinction between how he and Mary respond. He asked for a sign. And it looks like Gabriel gives a somewhat frustrated, almost irritated response. I have no idea if angels can be frustrated or irritated, but it seems like Gabriel is here. I love Gabriel's response. So listen, Zechariah says, I'm old. Show me a sign to which Gabriel emphatically responds. I am Gabriel. And to add to the fact, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent by God to speak to you. Let me sum that up in our language. Zechariah, you want a sign that's humorous. How about the fact that Gabriel is standing before you telling you this? Zechariah, you're a priest. Have you not read the Old Testament? I'm a big deal. And I'm standing here telling you, you are going to have a child and you're asking for a sign. What else do you need? Zechariah is an example Of how even the most faithful will have times of doubt. Even the most faithful are not exempt from moments of doubt. Even the most faithful will struggle with questions of unbelief. Zechariah has Gabriel standing in front of him and he's struggling. So what happens next? We have some divine discipline. Kids, again, how many of you have experienced timeout? Anybody? Anybody experienced timeout? It's like three or four of you. Parents use that. You know, go sit in your room, sit in the corner, just go sit on the couch. Do not. I don't want to hear a word for the next five minutes, ten minutes, however long it needed to be. Any? You've gotten that one? Okay. Been there, done that. Adults, you remember that one? Well, this is that on steroids. Zechariah gets time out from the angel Gabriel. You know what will penetrate a thick skull that's having a hard time listening to and believing God? Nine months of silence for Zechariah. And this was certainly unique and somewhat severe. Okay, But it was a severe mercy. This is how God's discipline works. It's not arbitrary punishment. It is for good. You are going to get to see soon enough. Zechariah burst out in a prophecy of praise to God. This was meant for his good. It is. It's been rightly said. Do not be concerned with experiencing the rebuke of God. Be concerned when it never comes. Kids, do not be concerned with experiencing the right discipline of your parents and godly discipline from your parents. Be concerned if it never comes. Think about who does the Bible say that God disciplines? Those he loves. Those he loves. All right. What's the lesson? Lesson. Trust that God has your best in view. Trust that God has your best in view. God had what was best in view for Zechariah. It's the same for us. There's a much larger conversation to be had about the discipline of God, all the means 
that he uses, all the forms that it takes. But that's for another day. For now, let's see through the story of Zechariah that God has what's best in view for his people. We can trust that God's rebuke is for our ultimate good. Whatever means or form that discipline takes in our lives, it is for our ultimate good. His mercy may be severe, but it is still mercy nonetheless. Next observation, I want us to see warning that beckons a response. Warning that beckons a response. This is where you start to get to the main point of John's ministry. Okay, This is kind of looking ahead. John was sort of a one-note preacher. And what was that note? Repentance. Gabriel is pointing ahead to that. Verse 16, he'll turn Turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What do the people need to do to get ready? Repent. They need to turn. Okay, They need to go a different directions. It all starts with repentance. John's message was laced with a word of warning, which we'll see more of in the weeks ahead. But the gospel, the good news starts with coming to grips with our need for it. Here's the deal. If you don't understand your need for grace, then you are in no position to see how amazing and undeserving you are for grace. One pastor put it this way. He said, if you don't understand your need for grace, then you're no, in no position to reach out in desperation for it. He goes on to say, if you don't understand your need for forgiveness, then, then there is no joy in receiving it. This is why we sing, let every heart prepare him room. There is no joy in the heart that has no room. Here's what I don't want us to miss. John the Baptist will carry out the ministry of the prophecy of Malachi that I referenced earlier. And that prophecy has a note of warning. I tried to emphasize it earlier when I read that. It basically says, turn, repent. And then ends with this, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In just a few chapters, John is going to talk about the wrath of God to come. He'll make reference to be thrown, in, to be thrown into the fire. He'll talk about an unquenchable fire. For the sake of time and To sum this up and to be blunt but hopefully compassionate at the same time, there is a warning in the Christmas message. Christmas comes with a warning. Yes, emphatically yes. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let the earth receive her king. Let heaven and nature sing at the arrival of her king. But let all creatures tremble at the rejection of this same king. John was sent to turn people toward Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In his message is a word of warning. Receive this king and there is joy. But reject this king and there is hell. The message of John is one of urgency. Therefore, here's the lesson. Turn to Jesus before the time has Past, turn back from disobedience, as the text says. Turn to the wisdom of the Lord. Turn back from life on your own terms. The only heart that welcomes Jesus is a repentant one. John was sent to tell his generation that. And it's the same message today. It's time to stop running away from God. It's time to stop trying to fix the mess that sin has made in your life. It's time to stop trying to do that on your own. It's time to repent, to turn around, to give up, to turn away from everything else and turn toward God. That's repentance. Okay, Leave this behind and turn over here in faith to something completely different and completely sufficient. Christmas beckons you to admit that you were desperate. And you need a savior. John is the pointer to Jesus, that savior, the one who died for you, the one who rose for you, the one who now lives so that you can have life. Jesus, John was sent to turn people toward Jesus. The lesson 
is to do this before the time has passed, before it's too late, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. You're walking into yet another Christmas season. You, by the grace of God, if you don't know Jesus, you're given another Christmas season. And you are here this morning to hear that that Christmas season is meant to tell you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Because one day you won't get another one. One day it will be too late. There's still time to receive him. But one day there won't be. With that in mind, let me add this last observation. I've sort of already jumped into it. But lastly, we see good news that alters the world. Good news that alters the world. I think John gets a bad rap, kind of. John's the original fire and brimstone kind of preacher. We have to admit, he's a weird dude. He really was. Alistair Begg said you wouldn't exactly call him preppy. Uh, he said, he's, you know, it's like this guy that walks around in this really freaked out gear. And he's sort of the forerunner to like the vegetarian hippie movement. You hear Begg say that in his accent. And it's hilarious. He's a weird dude. But, you know, I heard someone make a really good point. This part funny and I think part true. You see in verse 15 that John will be uniquely set apart by his lifestyle. Some, something akin to a Nazarite vow, but, but different than that. And someone probably said, you know, John's got to live like this. In particular, John doesn't need to drink because they're already going to think he's a drunk. Kind of go to Acts chapter, you know, the first part of Acts. When the spirit falls, everybody thinks they've been drinking. Peter goes, we hadn't touched it, man. Like You didn't want a guy like John in the bottle. But no matter the reputation John had, his message was one ultimately of good news. Gabriel makes this clear. He says, verse 14, that people will rejoice at his birth. Verse 19, he calls the message about John good news. John is a part of what is called good news or to use another term that's more familiar, gospel. John got to get that started. What is the gospel that God is about to, at this time, send a Savior to die for your sins that you might spend forever with Him. That's the good news. John's saying, turn back to Him. John's about to launch that ministry. This baby didn't just come to bring joy to a couple who had waited for such news. This baby came to point people to an eternal joy. Brought about by the arrival of the Messianic age. Luke didn't see John the Baptist bringing a negative message that stood in contrast to the positive message of Jesus. He saw him coming, bringing the joyous announcement that the hope of all nations has arrived. John gets to be, I mentioned this earlier, John gets to be the very first one to say, behold. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is not a negative message. That's gospel. John was preaching the gospel. Look, there's Jesus, the one slain for your sins. So what's the lesson here? Trust in Jesus and discover lasting joy. Look, Christmas is both emphatically special. And when I say Christmas, I'm sort of taking cultural Christmas. It's both emphatically special and dangerously distracting. At the heart of Christmas is lasting joy. At the heart of Christmas is joy to the world, the joy of the world. The problem is there's so much distraction pulling our attention away from the heart of Christmas. Hence, again, Advent. That's why something like this is so useful. Western Christmas is a bit like having your iPhone face up on the table in the midst of a serious, important conversation with a real person in front of you. It's lighting up, it's flashing notifications, it's dinging, it's buzzing, it's vibrating. Take it's you, everything in you wants to look at it and you're looking away from this conversation down to that. And you've trained yourself to give attention to this and ignore what's going on there and miss what's important right in front of you. Miss what is what's sitting right there 
Western Christmas is a lot like that. Are we able to ignore and fight off the distractions and look at and concentrate on the true joy that Christmas brings? Not the temporary joy that comes with a meal. Those are good things. Or present. Those are good things. Or ritual. Those are good things. But are we able to fight off the distraction and look at the lasting joy that's only found in Jesus? I pray this Advent season would help us to do that. For now, we have something even more important than the Advent season to help us focus on what is truly special at Christmas. We have the privilege today to observe the Lord's Supper. I mentioned earlier, Advent allows us to reenact and remember the coming of Jesus. The Lord's Supper allows us to step a little bit further into history and focus on the reason why Jesus came. To die for the salvation of sinners. The elements that we have at these tables represent the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. So we can look past. We can use this. This is here. So we can look past the events of Christmas. Look past the manger and see the cross. If you're a Christian here today, walking in repentance and faith, we invite you to join with us during this time. So this is for you. If you are walking in repentance and faith, if you're not a member of this church, we want you to participate. But if you are not, if you don't know this king, if you don't, if your heart has not prepared room for this king, then this is a good time to just observe everybody else while they're doing this and to sit and reflect on what you've heard today. Maybe reflect on the warning of this text and the good news that it sets up. We asked you not to partake, but simply observe a people purchased at a high price. So right now I want to go ahead and get everybody to stand and make your way to these tables after you've grabbed both elements. There's tables on the side, tables in front after you've grabbed each element.